Radio, part of the Inside Lens Network. If you are a victim of crime trying to graduate to being a survivor uh, with an emphasis on the aftermath or how it impacts your life, uh, if you appreciate diversity of topic and want to come along for the ride, if you're looking for cutting-edge programs, information, resources, inspiring people uh, that assist you in finding your voice, you have come to the right place. This is Donna R. Gore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. So welcome, everyone, to another Saturday edition, a fall Saturday edition, to Shattered Lives Radio. And um, I want to let you know that today we have a, a, a bit of a change of topic. You know, I'm trying to be a bit more diverse because I am a diverse person. And we occasionally do shows um, relating to disability and or health and wellness or whatever tickles my fancy, which is great. So today is one of those shows. And although we've had some an impressive lineup in the past of people dealing with elder care issues such as PM Atwood and, and other people, we have a couple of people today that are going to speak with regard to elder care, but also combining that with the vibrancy and energy of people who are going to college. And it's called intergenerational residence living. And um, so we have, we have two guests, Erica DeFrancisco, who is an occupational therapist and a, a professor. Um, and, we, and, and we also have Victoria Kozar, who is a student at Quinnipiac University that is based in Hamden, not that far down the road from our friends at the Henry Lee Institute. But I digress about that. So let me say good morning to Delilah and just say, isn't it nice that we have a we have a, a different and kind of refreshing topic today, Delilah? Yeah, it, it totally is, and I'm really, really interested in this. My daughter works in um, an assisted living, who caring for elderly patients, and they've done a lot of remarkable things at the facility that she's now working. And I think this may be something for our local university, and we have so many assisted living facilities in the area that it it could be a great combination. So I'm very interested in hearing how this all comes about. Yes, indeed. So um, with that, um, let, let's say welcome, ladies, to Shattered Lives Radio. It's an honor to have you. And, it's an honor um, to be here, Donna. Thank you and thank Delilah. Thank you for having us. Well, it's, it's our pleasure to host you. You know, we did a lot of hard work to, to get to this point, and I know, I know we're going to enjoy it, and that's part of the show, too. So, Erica, um, you know, I know what an occupational therapist does in a rehab setting because I've worked with people like you, like yourself. But you know, there is an aspect of occupational therapy that that deals more with the topic that we're talking about. It's not just about bathing, bathing, dressing, feeding those functional activities that people do. Can you kind of give us a little thumbnail sketch of? what you do in, in your role, and then we'll get into maybe how this developed and, and, and bring in Victoria from there. 
Yeah, so I love that you asked that because occupational therapy continues to be such a widely misunderstood field. Most people come to me and they say, oh, you're an occupational therapist. I don't need your services because I have a job. And I tell them, no, that's (laughs) not what I do. So I, I really appreciate this opportunity to share with the world what we do. And one of the things that's important to highlight is that we work with people Um, from womb to tomb, and so from infancy all the way through end of life. My own passion is in working with older adults and with people with mental illness around prevention and health promotion, but occupational therapy is a helping profession. It's a health profession that helps people across the lifespan to basically do the things that they want and need to do through the therapeutic use of daily activities. So the first thing that when somebody comes to me and they have a disruption in occupational performance is I find out what are you struggling with? What is it that you love to do that you can no longer do? And part of what occupational therapists do, our tagline is help people to live life to the fullest. And I love that tagline. So if somebody used to golf, but because of an injury, they can no longer golf, I'm going to try to work with that person to find adaptive technologies to see if I can help that person continue to do what they love to do. And maybe it's that that person cannot golf anymore, but I can help them to Um, find a community where they can use their love for golf to teach others how to golf. So I'm just giving you an example around golf, but it's about helping people to do what they love to do with whatever disruption they're experiencing in their life. It's funny you say that because Myrtle Beach, where Delilah is based and where I have a property, is the golf capital of the world, just to tell you. (laughs) Anyway. I don't know why I chose that, but maybe there was some spiritual reason for that. Maybe. Maybe. So, yes, that's just one example. So it doesn't have to do with employment. That's more I work with vocational rehabilitation counselors at my job, too. So all of these, you know, our professions get these titles, and they're very confusing, aren't they? You know, you know uh, indeed they are. And so we can help people around the occupation of work. But if somebody is struggling with rest and sleep, that's another area. We do a lot around sleep hygiene. You know, what are those sleep habits that you have? So that's another example of an occupation that we can help individuals with. Mm-hmm. And so in, in dealing with the kinds of population that, that you have in your career, um, how do you, and I know you, you specialize in geriatrics, which I did in my former career. How, how does today's present topic relate to your profession? What, what was the um, seed of an idea or the infrastructure that you had to build before this all began? Yeah, so that's a great question. So because I teach at Quinnipiac University, I am a clinical associate professor at Quinnipiac, and I was approached by a local retirement care community called Masonicare. And Masonicare, or a colleague of mine at Masonicare, had just been to a conference where she heard of college students living for an entire year with elders. So no, they were not living in dorms with people their age. They were living with individuals that were three, four times their age. So within this conversation, here was my friend who works in the retirement care community, and then here I was working at a university. And we said, Ken, do we think that we can actually make this happen? So 
what I said to her was, let me go back and I'll poll some of the students because that's who we need to ask. So I teach a course in aging and I went in one day and I said, we have this crazy idea. It's happening around the country, but not in too many places. How many people in this, in this room would consider living for an entire year with older adults? And one hand shot up and then another hand shot up. And there were quite a few hands, and I went back really? to my friends. You know what? I mean, I won't tell you it was the entire class. I had about 80 people in there, and in one class there were at least, I think, about anywhere from 7 to 10 that would consider it. I went back to her, and I said, this was one class. If I had 7 to 10 people that were interested in this possibility, then let's, let's put it out there in the world, and let's see what happens. So from there we designed an application process. We talked to um, the residents at Masonicare to make sure, you know, do you want to live? Do you want your neighbor to be a college student? So it wasn't just about what the college students wanted. And if a college student was your neighbor, what kinds of things would you want that college student to be doing? So it was a really intentional process um, whereby it started three years ago. And we are currently in our third year. It's been that successful. So right now we have our our fifth student living at Masonicare. Uh, okay, and and the fifth student w would that be you, Victoria, or or you were one of the initial ones, and you're sort of a veteran, and that's why you're here to talk about your experience. Is that correct? I like to consider myself a little bit of a pioneer. I was uh, one of the first people to come on board with this, uh, building the ship as we were sailing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were well, well then that's great. What were your um, motivations to do it? And what and what was your initial expectation before you even, you know, got involved? I'm just curious. Well, to begin with, uh, I've always had a passion for geriatrics. Uh, one of my first jobs in high school, I taught a water aerobics class to older ladies, and I absolutely loved it. Coming mm -hmm. to, to college, I felt that I was lacking in those relationships. Um, and going, going into the experience, honestly, I, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I joke, my first day in there, it felt like going into the cafeteria for the first time, not knowing where to sit or who to talk to or how I was going to be received. And I was so, so surprised and happy to find how well-received uh, my presence was in that community. They, oh, uh, they welcomed me with open arms. Yeah. Give, give us some sense of how large, at Ashley Village, how large is the community? And if people don't know, Masonic Care is affiliated with the, with the Masons organization nationwide, correct? I used to work there years ago. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So I was in um, assisted living, uh, and it was a community called Pond Ridge. And I think there's about somewhere around 200, give or take, um, members in that community. Uh-huh. And so it's, a, so, it's a big group to get to know a lot of people. And, and one of the so, things, if I can share, too, um, Donna, ahead. one of the things is that on the application, in the application process, we ask students to come forth and articulate a gift that they have. You know, so mm -hmm. part of the reason is that we designed this program was because of the reciprocal gifts. What gifts will students have to offer their new neighbors? And then we designed this because we acknowledge that, 
living amongst elders, living amongst older adults, they are gifts in and of themselves. The wisdom that they have, the stories that they have to share. So the students had to come forth and say, what do I have to offer? You know, if I live in a Masonic here, if I live in Pond Ridge, what can I give? Because part of this experience involves a minimum of eight to 10 hours a week of service. So students have to define what that service is. And part of the application selection is around how students articulate and what that gift they feel like they have to offer. So there were quite a few applicants. I mean, we had over, I think, about 25 applicants the first year, and Victoria was so well received. I mean, we, we saw so many gifts in her. And it, it, yeah, it's just it, it was it was an honor to bring her. But the other piece is, I think you know, part of the reason we have her here today is because three years out, she's now an alumni. She is still friends with the people that she met during that year. That that is so special. That really is. Um, can you give us some idea of the? Now, initially, you just didn't want to like open it up to ten people. 10 college students because this was a sort of a pilot project and you wanted to you wanted to start out slow or you want to keep the numbers down it's about quality not quantity is that right Erica it is so so um, even still even to this day um, we have in the application that Masonic here will accept up to two students so Masonic here committed to opening up two rooms because there's that's that's a lot of it's an expense it's you know it's opening up two rooms for an entire year when they could be making money and using those funds so so that's why they're not really able to take 10 students but one of the things we're looking at is how can we create um, mini students in residence programs so for instance Masonic here may not open up 10 beds to say students come live with us but we're looking at one-week experiences, you know, might there be opportunities for shorter experiences? And I think we'll get a lot more students applying to something like that because many people will tell me they don't apply for this program because to live away from a dorm for an entire year is a big commitment and it's intimidating for them. But they're saying that if it was a shorter experience, they'd be much more apt to apply to this program. Yeah, I see Go ahead. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. Building off of that, I've, we've made sure that there are experiences similar to that on a much smaller scale for students. Um, when I moved in, uh, I quickly received very positive feedback from my peers. People were so eager to come see how I was living um, and experience what I was experiencing. So on a much smaller scale, uh, I founded a club called Old Friends and New, kind of pairing college students with the older adults mm-hmm. in the community, showing that you don't need the program to make those intergenerational friendships. Really? What kind of a club was it? I mean, um, well, it's Aquinasiac, so it's very much kind of like a, a big brother, big sister almost, where we, we have surveys for both parties and based on interests and backgrounds and occupations and all kinds of different factors bringing people together. Yeah, so one of the things, if I can piggyback on what Victoria was saying, is she came to me that first year and said, I've made such good friends. And 
I really want to introduce my friends to a lot of people at Quinnipiac. You know, I, I want them to see what I'm seeing. I want to change the lens of what people think about when they think about older adults and aging because my, her own lens had changed. So she was inspired and she came to me and said, what can we do? So she founded, again, three years ago, it's a student-run club at Quinnipiac. It is one of 112 clubs that Quinnipiac offers, but the purpose is to nurture and provide opportunities for Quinnipiac students to form and develop intergenerational relationships. So it, it's beautiful. You don't have to be a student in resident, and that's part of what Victoria um, was trying to say. You know, you can, we can help you to change your lens. We can introduce you. You know, you may be missing your grandmother, and we right. want to introduce you to another older adult who won't replace your grandmother but can give you um, that advice can, mm-hmm. that you can have that relationship with. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this past, fall they had a student involvement fair and over a hundred freshmen signed up to find out more about this club wow that's wonderful it's almost like dipping your toe in the ocean before you go swimming right (laughs) i I love that analogy donna yes well you could you could use it for free (laughs) Um, yeah yeah that's that's wonderful listen i wanted to ask you um what now what what's the what's the benefit on the other side? I don't think we've mentioned on the air that for one year out of well, how many how many years do do people attend uh Quinnipiac University? Is it two or four? You know, it depends on the major, and okay. sometimes people have the ability to sort of fast track it, so there are programs that are three years undergrad, and then they continue on for two years. But I would say typically around approximately four years is the average. Okay. But for this program, though, for you to be in it um, and you you to be, a, you know, a best buddy to a senior, you, you are able to get your room and board for free for one year. Is that is that true? Yes. And what are, besides all these other wonderful relationship benefits, are there other benefits to the student besides not having that financial burden? Uh, Well, outside of that, um, meals were also included. um, And I I was given a little bit of leeway uh, as far as I was able to not only see what activities the residents were already doing, but I was able to implement my own. Uh, And that was a good way to get to know uh, different populations of people uh, within Masonic Care. So, for example, I ran a, a baking group, which ended up being more of a ladies' club, where we all talked about our families. Um, we shared recipes together, uh, shared the holidays together. Uh, we did jewelry making, and I kind of was able to share my interests with them as well as they shared their interests with me, which I thought was a very cool exchange. Wow, yeah. I Well, I was going to ask you in terms of the... Um, roster of students that that you have had, Erica, um, since it it was initiated three years ago. What are some other, besides the gifts that Victoria has has so obviously given, what are some examples of the other kinds of talents that the other people have given in the program? 
also, um, I, I, I want to continue along sort of Victoria and her partner because that year, um, Victoria yep. and the other student created a blog, and it was something that all of my friends, they looked forward to getting the blogs. Um, so, so they were out there sharing their stories about what was happening. And one of the things that I loved that Victoria did is, um, were you in a sorority yeah. at the time? Can you just speak a little bit about the fashion show that you had? Uh, yeah, a fashion so, show. Yeah, to get, my, my friends, as I had mentioned, were very interested in finding a way to get involved uh, in the community I was living in. So I, I gathered some of my uh, sorority sisters together, some of my friends from my classes, and we took all of our formal wear, and we, we had a fashion show uh, for my neighbors, but it quickly turned into much more than that, where it was less of a give and a take, and it turned into a big giant dance party where we were sharing music from, from our lives, and they were sharing music from their lives, and it ended up being so cooperative and collaborative, and everyone found out they had so much more in common than they would have expected, which kind of helped spark um, old friends and new because so many of my friends wanted to come back and visit and speak further with the people that they had met. Yeah, so, so I loved I loved that. And then some of the other students, if I can think back, um, we had one gentleman who was a musician. He was a phenomenal piano player, and his voice, was was beautiful. So he he played at happy hour. So at Masonicare they have happy hour, which is a little bit earlier. <laughs> when yeah. is that? <laughs> it's um what's that? He they they have happy hour at three o'clock there with I believe a maximum of two drinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um and so that's how and Joe would play at happy hour, but if I can also share one of the more touching moments, he would also play every year, um, or a, at least a few times a year, Masonicare has a service that honors all the people that have passed away, and Joe mm-hmm. would often go and, and play. So he was a part of, again, that, that end-of-life healing process that honored people who had lived there. So, and that was, that was touching for, for him as well. Um, currently, the student that we have is a second-year law student, and mm-hmm. she is also a musician and plays three instruments beautifully. So, really? So what a, yes, what a gift she has. Now, she's not able to practice law, but what she's doing is she's anytime there's a need and people know that she's a, um, a law student, then they're, they're coming to her because of that. But she's going back to her professors and finding gaps and, and saying, is there anything that we can be doing? You know, I may not be able to do this now because I don't have my, you know, license, but what can be done? So, so she's using her gifts in terms of social justice and needs assessment and observation, but also mm-hmm. her gifts as a musician. And ultimately, the professors are going back and saying, yes, we can assist in this way. So, you know, what a, what a wonderful interconnectedness and in being able to solve problems. I mean, I deal with that every day in my job working with very elderly people, too, at Services for the Blind in Connecticut. And they have so many needs, and it's very fulfilling to be able to help them, you know, beyond what our agency is about sometimes. You have to go the extra mile, and it reaps many rewards. But I also wanted to ask both of you about, you know, I'm just thinking the health benefits. You know, we're dec- we've done shows, Delilah and I. Remember, Delilah, we did a show with a, with a lady with regard to 
um, a child who was um, severely disabled and they were isolated and she did a whole program about you know, uh, a national program about not isolating yourself and and how the quality of life has improved. And I'm just thinking as you're talking, ladies, that, you know, when you get a certain age and even my age and above, you start getting more medical issues. And it's it's a, a part of life when you live in assisted living and hopefully you're staving off going to the skilled nursing unit because you're still somewhat independent. But what has something like this done in terms of impacting health? Can you can you address that, Erica, for Victor Victoria's? Um, uh, I guess I'll start here. Um I found that there was almost a bubble between both populations, both college students and older adults, where on our end it was less health-related, where we weren't exposed to much outside of, of what we were learning in our classes. And I felt the same thing was kind of happening almost uh, within those who I was living with at, at Masonic Care. And by making them more active and involved, uh, I think that it benefited us both, but it definitely helped uh, keeping the mind sharp uh, and keeping engaged and being very aware of, of all kinds of things that were happening. Yeah, and, and I'd love to do some more research around that. That's something that really intrigues me. How can we quantify? How can we measure those health benefits? I mean, I can only hypothesize right now based on, you know, the stories that people shared. But one of the benefits was about how empowered and how people felt so, like they were contributing so much in terms of being able to give such rich advice and, and their stories were, were so valued. I mean, Victoria would spend, if I, if she used to tell me she would spend hours at night talking to her friends and her, you know, her friends again who were three, four times her age and those friends were giving her advice and what a meaningful, again, occupation or experience that is for an older adult to be sharing their wisdom, you know, based on, you know, the mistakes that they made and as well as sort of the, 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 the beauty of, of the life that they lived. So to be able to honor that and share that with Victoria, there, there are health benefits. You also mentioned isolation. They say that loneliness is a public health epidemic, and it's a global epidemic. So I think loneliness can happen across all sort of life stages. I see loneliness happening on college campuses, you know, especially after students move in their freshman year, they're faced with that. And then loneliness can also happen um, in retirement community homes, you know. Um, so, so there was that opportunity for students to be out there um, embracing and having conversations with people. And so it was beautiful to watch. So I think there's a lot of health benefits, and I, I think we need to be out there measuring what those health benefits are. Yeah, piggybacking off of that, uh, a lot of the residents, too, I the way that they, they were able to talk with me, I think it really broke down stereotypes and misunderstandings that even some of them, I think, felt came with aging, where it was more about embracing the fullness of life that had been lived and, and not to fear it because I feel like a lot of young people look at that as something to dread and the fact that they were able to share what they were able to share with me and my friends, uh, I, I think it opened a dialogue that wouldn't have otherwise happened and I think it definitely benefited uh, everyone. Yeah, it, it just sounds, it, it enriches everyone's life. I mean, I remember my 
grandmothers and and they both passed on never never knew my grand grandfathers so you know I would gravitate to something like that and I know how much they gave me um in earlier years especially with all of my hospitalizations and over 50 surgeries if you ladies didn't know that I was a product of you know so many a very unusual uh, childhood myself so I think just having someone there of a grandparent figure is is very is very enriching. And I hope you do study it, and I hope you can come back and and share that. I um, do too. Those results. I do. I think I think that would be I think that would be wonderful. But we're there. Not that I want to dwell on this, but you you have this master plan, you know, and you've written it out, and. I mean, are there any kind of funny, are there any pitfalls that happen that you didn't anticipate when these two, um, these two age groups went together, any bugs that you had to work out that maybe you didn't plan for? You know, I'll have Victoria speak to that in a little bit. I think one thing we we needed to be very clear with students about was that you may be coming in as an occupational therapy student or a physical therapy student, but you are not there to practice because you are not a licensed professional yet. So so part of that is the education to educate the students that you may be asked to do things and also to educate the staff that because this is an occupational therapy, a physical therapy student, a physician assistant student, they are not here to practice the profession. So so that's been something we've really had to um, make sure that we educated a lot of people about because – once people heard the profession, I think there was this tendency to say, oh, you can do this or you can do that. But they're not there to practice their profession. They're there to use the gifts that they applied for. Does that make sense? So that's been yeah. something that we've, that we've had I to navigate. I see there's because, a line at the door forming, knock on the door. I have this pain here. I have this. Can you help you me? You got <laughs> it. You got it. So, you so, know? And, and yeah, and it's hard. I think you know when you're asked to do something that by by an older adult, sometimes it's easy to sort of want to do that. And how do you navigate that, and you know assert yourself and and be very clear about your role there. So that's something we've had to help students with to define their role, and because we want to make sure that they're not practicing outside the scope of practice or violating any of the professional code of ethics. Right, uh, and, right. And the last on that too. Uh, I was a pre-medical student and I took a lot of classes on aging um, and and death and dying and going into that situation one of the pitfalls was I thought I knew what I was getting myself into and I thought I knew how these people lived and and what life was like and it was kind of turned upside down where what you read in the textbook isn't always the reality that people are living. Um, I I had to learn with coping with loss of of friends, um, of dealing with cognitive decline uh, as the year progressed and even onward with my friendships now. And they were all things that a traditional education could not have possibly prepared me for, which I would not necessarily say it was a pitfall because it definitely makes you more of a critical thinker and it makes you a more socially aware person. Uh, So I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword there where it enriched my education in a way I would have never gotten with just a college degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just all of these experiences expand your repertoire of knowledge and, and to see what 
people are really dealing with versus what what the textbook says and it's it's isn't isn't it true Erica that you know when we went out on our internships that was far more valuable than than what we what we you know learned in the classroom from the textbooks I mean I always got a lot more on all these internships I had to do before I chose my area of speech pathology you know? Yeah, there there is tremendous learning. We cannot devalue what goes on, like you said, when you're in an environment in which you get to interact with people. So that's why I try to tell people. I was just on our um, on Quinnipiac's news station, internal news station, and I asked the videographer. I said, "Have you considered applying for this program?" And she said. No, I don't. I'm not interested in in sort of geriatrics. That's not my path. I'm a journalist. And I said, I would like to reframe this for you, that regardless of what your path is, there are benefits to applying for this program and becoming a student in residence to any student on this campus because it is such a unique opportunity. But many people are not applying because they say, I don't want to work with older adults. So Part of the pitfall, I think, too, is we need to do a better job marketing this so that far more students are applying because each year I'm shocked. I say to myself, why are there not more? So the other thing I I tried to um, share with this person that I was interviewing with was that, and I said this very clearly, I said, if you are a Quinnipiac student, you have a gift. You may not be able to articulate that gift, but there are a lot of people when they see that you need to apply with a gift, they say, well, I can't sing or I can't dance. And I try to help them be very broad about what those gifts are. If you speak another language, that's a gift. If you, some people, you know, can argue that their own personality is a gift. Mm -hmm. If you love books, you can start a book club. So I'm I'm really trying, and I, I do think that's one of the pitfalls is that I want to see a much larger pool of applicants, um, so that we can you know we've we've had great students, but I want more people applying. So I think we need to change how we're marketing this program. I I, I couldn't agree more, and I think you know as you're speaking. Um, one thing that comes to mind that I've always seen for, for many years is that typically our society, it's the disposable part of our society that that later years. And I'm so glad that now we've had many shows um, with a lot of people from AARP in Connecticut promoting those things too. I forgot to mention that earlier, Erica. And the programs that are being developed, we're, we have to harness the knowledge, the energy, the resources, educate them about, you know, scams and all of that. So it, it's not just, oh, well, they've, they've served their time and they're old. And you are the proof here by saying that these people are not disposable. They they still have a lot to give, and by combining forces, it can only be be something very special and powerful. And um, so, a couple a, a couple of other things I was I was wondering um, before, and I do want to ask you about the national scope too, and what the future may be, because as Delilah had hinted, this should be across every state and college campus, you know, but you had mentioned a couple of things about 
well, dining with them. How is it? How is it situated? You know, a lot of people exchange information. Whether it's, you know, a lot a lot of assisted living have beautiful dining rooms, and it's almost like gourmet service. Or is it home style dining, and you you sit with like four or five people that that you get to know a lot? Or can you kind of switch up and 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 eat with other people? Victoria, is it one large dining experience? Because that's where. You, you know, a lot of enrichment takes place too. Over food is very important to elderly people. So it was a beautiful thing that I was able to experience uh, various different types of dining situations. So as you had mentioned, there was a a grand dining room where I usually did my my lunchtime meal there, where I was able to bounce around to table to table a little bit to get to know a wider variety of people. But uh, for dinner uh, in the little hallway that I was in. There was kind of a grab-and-go area with seats, and I would have dinner with the same women every night. I'd be coming in from class. They'd ask me how my day was, what I learned, if I made any friends. I'd ask them what was happening throughout their day. So I was able to get a little bit more of an intimate relationship as well over food. So it was great that that was what was able to bring people together. It felt like a sense of not only community but family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's great. Um over time, um, have can either of you speak to the fact that uh, even though you know this is the third year in and you're maybe still working out some bugs and you're wanting to expand and do research, what do you see even now that this is so successful and you're going to grow? What's the biggest need do you see with regard to elderly in, in, in this situation, even with students there enriching their lives? What's the biggest need? Well, I like to think the biggest need is shifting people's perspective on it. I think a lot of students forget that we're in a changing demographic and the population is aging. And no matter what field they're going into or whatever their passions are, they're going to encounter older adults in their life, in their career, in their neighborhoods. And I think by Having this program, it's been able to, on a very small scale, be able to start shifting people's perspective, but there's still a lot of work to be done where I think a lot of students feel like they're either they're going to be an occupational therapist or they're going to be a journalist, and, and they forget about the people that they're going to be serving in each of these roles and that it's a much bigger picture than that. Yeah, and I think I, I do also think it's a lot about sensitivity as well. I mean, um, Victoria spoke to that question very eloquently, but not only you know will they be surrounded by older adults, they will become older adults themselves. Yep. So, so a part of this is really about diversity, awareness, and sensitivity. That how do you talk to older adults? How you know there's there's a lot of articles out there on elder speak that, you know, where where college students are calling older adults cute. Aren't they cute? Aren't they sweet? Or they're changing their voice in a way that. They may not even condescending. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, right. I so know. I I agree with Victoria completely that it's about changing their lens. There are so many myths surrounding older adulthood. And when I teach my aging course, it's sort of funny. I, I ask my students who are approximately twenty years old to identify those ages that they looked forward to. 
And, you know, I think the ages that they typically talk about are, are you know, eight, 16 when they got their driver's license. And then 21, you know, when they were of legal age to, to drink, the, the voting, um, when they could vote. Then they talk about, you know, when they get a job, when they get married, when they have kids. But then it gets quiet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's... It sounds like it's all downhill from there. You know, I mean, I guess so. So the other piece is, you know, I talked about reframing for students about helping them to understand the gifts that they have to offer. But the other piece is uh, we really need to help youth understand the gifts that older adults have to offer that there is tremendous wisdom, that, yes, some things may be declining, but there are also some things that are going to be improving as well. And so there's so many myths surrounding older adulthood, and that's a gap. And we need to do it at an earlier age. By the time people come to college, many of them have their path already figured out, or at least they think they do. So how can we shift these perspectives at an even younger age? you know, high school, middle school, so that now they get more excited to potentially alter or change their path. Yeah, um, you, you know, we're cut from the same cloth in terms of the things that you're saying here. It, it's so true. I just, you know, how do we, um, let's talk a little bit about how are you actually marketing the program and the support that you've had both from Ashler and your university and what do you see in terms of marketing in the future and where might you want to go with this? Well, so the press has been fabulous. For each move-in day, each year, we've had a lot of news reporters chronicle um, the, the move-in day, and it's gone viral. I mean, we've been all over. New York Times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, nationally and and internationally. So that's been great, but then I think there's this piece where there's not a lot of press that happens after that. So right. you know, and then all of a sudden that next year we're we're out there having the application process. So I think it needs to be much more continuous. One of the things that Masonicare has done is um help the students to create video blogs. And that's mm -hmm. been wonderful, but I think, again, how do we get that out there on social media more? I'm really excited that one of the things we're doing this year is we are hosting a film screening. I don't know if you've seen the movie or the documentary by Sky Bergman called Lives Well Lived. Have you seen that, either of you? Um, no. Have you, Delilah? No, I have not, but it sounds quite interesting. So, so it's fabulous. It's it's. I love the name of the documentary in and of itself. It's a producer out of California. Her name is Sky Bergman, and she did a documentary. Her grandmother had just turned, I think, a hundred years old, and she was in love with the stories that her grandmother had. So she wanted to tell not only her grandmother's story but more stories. So this documentary um, is about adults and older adults, I want to say sort of 60 through 100 plus, that are answering questions about what a life well lived means to them. So one mm -hmm. of the things we're doing this year is hosting this film screening 
again, what it does is the, it, it provides an opportunity to change the lens of what aging is. Here are folks in the film that have talked about um, what their life was like going through the civil rights movement, the Holocaust. And, and sort of the resilience that they have because of those experiences. So they offer such great advice, and we're hosting this this week um, here at Quinnipiac. We are also really? We are for free to the public, to the community. We're also hosting one at Masonic here in November with the hope that now if students are there, they begin to get excited. Wow, this changed my lens of what aging could be. I want to live with folks like this for a year. So we're really looking at opportunities, different opportunities like that to get the word out. Okay. Do, do you have the dates for those two 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 showings if you want to share them on, on the I yeah, I do, and people can email me if they are interested or um, okay. even call and leave a message on my phone. So the first one is happening at Quinnipiac on the North Haven campus this Wednesday, um, which is October 24th. It begins at 6 p.m. and ends at 8.15 p.m. You can call me at 203-582-6845. Um, to leave a message and I can register you, or you can email me at, it's fairly long, so bear with me here, E-A-D-E-F, as in Frank, R-A-N-C-E-S-C-O, at Q-U-dot-com. So the first screening is on October 24th, and the second screening is at um, Masonicare on mm -hmm. November 29th. And and we're not sure about the times yet. Okay. Well, that that sounds very good. And and so you you got the rights to that, and and you're showing it at the two different facilities, right? I um, did. I, I I asked the dean. I said I said I feel very strongly about this. This meets our strategic vision. It it, it meets yeah. our mission. And would you be able to give me some money from the dean's <laughs> office? I asked him for three thousand dollars. He said I can't give you that, but I'll give you a thousand. Um, oh. you know, towards this project. Yeah. So I that's able to fund the license, the screening license to host two community screenings. So I'm so excited about that. Yeah, you're a think out of the box person like me. I I like this. Um, when you when you talk about you know social media and all, uh, Victoria, has this been a help or a hindrance? Are you are you at all or other people trying to introduce some of the elders to the positive things of social media, and has that kind of opened up their world too. I know you mentioned about the the blogs and chronicling, but do they say, oh, I don't know how to use my phone or whatever? I mean, are they open to learning about what millennials do now as a result of exposure to, to people in your age range? I definitely became the resident tech support uh, <laughs> during my time. Uh, I would get many a knocks on my door about a tablet or something that a family member had got them or having an interest. Uh, one woman was trying to ask me to teach her how to Skype to be able to speak with her family who didn't live close by. So and I you think did it was that? Able to, uh, yes. It was able to have like a conversation about all the things that were possible with technology, but it was also good to be able to talk about the goods and the bads and how it has changed over time. 
So even little things like that all became a dialogue where we were able to find commonality. I think the other thing, um, Donna and Delilah, is that we're talking about a lot of myths surrounding older adulthood, but the other thing this program does is debunk some of the myths surrounding the millennial generation and the youth. So, you know, adults and older adults have this view of what college students are like. So it becomes this reciprocal or mutual opportunity to debunk myths on both ends of the lifespan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that that would be a mutual benefit. They're not, they're not all people that are just there that want to go out and party and drink and et cetera, et cetera, you know. So, you know, and um, I, I just see nothing but good things for for the future with this. And, you know, I was reading, you know, one of the articles that you sent me from the day and having communicated with John Morgan, the communications director, at Quintipiac before I was fortunate to, to hook up with you, Erica. His comment in here was um, the, the next goal that they wanted to make was, was to be able to uh, have a, a Masonic Care resident live in a student dorm. What do you think <laughs> about that comment? So we've run into a few hiccups <laughs> because there's always policies that are put in place that we have to get around. So I have been working with housing, and so far, uh, you know, they're they're open to exploring the idea. Um, but we we have a housing, you know, I mean, we we have to have housing for our own students first and foremost. I think that's right. that's that's important. So he was proposing, you know, certainly not a year. Um, but there's a possibility that we could look at having an older adult um, live in the same room with a college student for a night or two. Um, but there's, again, a lot of policies around visitors, and these are policies that would, would apply to any visitor on campus. So mm -hmm. we're, we're in conversations. I, I still think it's a possibility, but there's a lot of work to be done on that. One of the things we think um, we're going to do in the spring, we have two things we're planning on. One is possibly bringing um, older adults from Masonicare for the day to attend a class, um, to host a meal at Quinnipiac, to have a discussion about sort of what, what, what's it like to be in college today versus maybe years ago, or for some people who may never have been to college. What does it feel like to be a part of the class? So I'm confident that we can bring people for a day, but once we start talking about, you know, an overnight experience, um, that's something that we have a little bit of work to do to work out. But the other thing we are offering, which I'm really excited about, is we've proposed a program called Quinnipiac University at Masonicare. Um, it's called the Spring Faculty Series where I put a call out to all faculty members at Quinnipiac in all programs to say, is there a topic that you want to speak to older adults about? That sometimes one of the barriers around um, education is transportation. So yes. people yes. want to take a class, but at Masonicare they may not have the resources or the means to be able to drive to Quinnipiac or to be able to pay. So this is an opportunity, and I've already received some applications where faculty are proposing um, different types of topics they want to go to Masonicare to teach. Now we're going to run it by the older adults, that they will be on a committee that will select the topics. 
That just because you uh, propose one doesn't mean there's going to be interest in it. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I I think it's I think it's wonderful. I I am so impressed, and you know, just the potential there is it is just ripe for you know great things in the future. And um, just to give you a little time check, I think we have about eight minutes left of our show, and it's going by very quickly, unfortunately. Um, wanted to, wanted to know. Um, again, getting back to initially what we had said in the very beginning, here we are in Connecticut, we're paving the way. What, what are the other states where they may have, um, like you said, you, you were introduced this from somebody else at a meeting about another program. Where is this taking place now? And how might, you know, just let's use South Carolina, for example, Coastal Carolina University, Georgetown Tech, any of those colleges down there that uh, we know of, how might somebody start to implement something like this? Are you talking to other people at other colleges, Erica, and saying, this is how you might start? Uh, well, th- we we were the first to do an assisted living at Masonic Care. Uh, I've actually, since moving out, have been contacted by very many colleges and assisted living communities, kind of trying to gauge my feedback and what worked and what didn't work. So I know there's a lot of places that are are setting the groundwork for programs like this, feeling very inspired by by the relationships that were made and and the barriers that have been broken down. Uh, I'm not sure some of the other programs were were a little bit different, um, less immersive. I know there were a few where students were providing service and then just living there um, with a little less interaction. I. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm not too, I, I don't have the exact names, but I know that there is another university um, where occupational therapy students, I think there's approximately four of them are living with older adults. I'm not sure what community setting it is. This yeah. has happened in Europe. I've mm-hmm. seen some, I believe there's even a, a documentary. Um, I forget what it's called, but Andrew Jenks, if you look him up, there's a documentary about him living with older adults so again we can't we although we are pioneers there are other pioneers out there I would as you would just like to see this become more common and I think the most important piece to to spearhead this is a partnership you know so so Quinnipiac University has a really strong partnership with Masonic Care where we have thought leaders and stakeholders from Masonic Care coming together with thought leaders and stakeholders from from Quinnipiac. And so we're in rooms together, brainstorming, talking about, you know, what could be and the possibilities. And we don't want to forget the importance of including older adults in this conversation, you know, if we're and the importance of including students in this conversation. We can't forget the most important stakeholders, and those are going to be the people who are going to be residing together. So, so really, right. it's about it's about a very strategic partnership and being very intentional about the process because there's a lot of things to consider. Yeah, and so it to me it. It's got to be a personal thing. It's not a corporate thing, although you do you are bringing, you know, cor- a co- sort of a corporate infrastructure to this. But it's got to, like you say, be very inclusive. So, if you know, I'm in Iowa or wherever it is, would you say to somebody, you know, if you have a very active um, senior community living association and a 
and a, um, a, a university that's thriving, and if you can seek to partner together to work on this, I mean, would that be general advice? Absolutely. I think I think people just need to be open to the possibilities, and they need to define for themselves what are those mutual benefits, because and and work those out together. Because clearly, um, we are wanting to graduate students who are employable. And let me tell you again, regardless of what path you are on, this gives you skills that any employer would want to have. Um, so, so really being able to define for both parties what's this mutual benefit. And I think once both parties see that there's a mutual benefit, then again, the opportunities are endless. But it really is about two parties coming together and two parties that have similar missions and vision and how do you sort of make it work from there? What are the goals on each part? Well, yeah, and I could see that as a project when I go to South Carolina as a permanent resident, try to help with that. It's exciting to me. So hopefully, you know, that I've got a few ideas now that we're talking. But another thing I wanted to ask you, too, part of this um, association for students is cost-saving, okay? Overall, I mean, there's an, for any venture, there's an initial monetary investment. But would you say on the whole, once it gets going, I mean, is this, uh, it, there's so much personal benefit, but is there also a monetary benefit once this gets up and running uh, versus, you know, a huge, ex I mean, there must be a huge monetary expenditure in the beginning or, you know, moving the deck chairs around in terms of how you allocate your resources. What, what would you say to that part so people know, you know, would it, there's a certain uh, investment you have to do in the beginning, but you are saving money because students are not having to pay that first year. Is that right? Well, I think it's a lot bigger than that. Honestly, the money side of things was not a draw at all for me. Um, I I don't even think that I was completely aware of what the benefits were when I signed up for this. It was yeah. so yeah. much bigger than that where I saw this as an opportunity to not only make myself a better future provider, but to be a better person and anything that came with that was just an added bonus. And I think the same goes from Masonic Hair's side of things where the quality of life for the residents and, and just seeing how engaged they are and the relationships that have grown, I think supersedes any kind of cost or benefit that comes uh, financially. Yeah, and I think, I think certainly that is a benefit, but it's not a benefit that we're hopeful that students are speaking to about their, as their primary motivation, because yeah. it will become pretty clear pretty quickly if that is one's primary motivation. And again, yeah, that is yes, more shallow. They're not there. Yeah, correct. Not and, and, again, and, and again, you can, you can tell, you know. So with Victoria, the beauty of what she did was there was a minimum of 8 to 10 hours. She put her heart and soul into this. And three years out, she continues to visit her friends from there. And she's even taken her parents to visit her friends from there. So it's it oh, not so cool. Yeah, it wasn't something you just sort of check off, you know, oh, I did it, I done check it, and it's done. It's something that should become the fabric of who you are. So, you know, I, I hesitate. It's certainly something we advertise as a benefit, but it's something almost that we want to put in very small print <laughs> yes. because, 
we want that to be sort of the last benefit that people are thinking about and right. as they talk well, about. Well, I just so the wanted to put really that out there in case there are those people thinking, oh, you know, I, I could save this money. If that's all you're thinking about, you, you shouldn't even apply. But it's good that, you know, we brought it up just to say that's not the focus. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great benefit, but yes, that that hopefully those other benefits associated with it are the reason why people are applying, and that becomes sort of the last piece that people are thinking about. Absolutely. I love that you brought that up, Donna. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> At, well, priorities here, and what the most important. <laughs> so, if you would like to give any contact information, and I know this was difficult for you to do, Erica, because of your schedule, but I really would like you both of you to keep in touch with me if we can help with any follow-up shows or a way we can continue to connect i'd appreciate that but for our audience would you like to give any contact information yeah so again you can yeah so i'll just i'll just give you my phone number again at work it's 203-582-6845 if anybody has any questions and i just want i want to thank you and delilah for this opportunity and i also want to thank uh, a few other people. I want to thank Masonicare for bringing this idea to our attention, and I want to thank all the older adults that I've met in my entire life who've been a gift to me. So I, I want to honor that I'm a, I'm a better person because of every older adult that I've ever met who's given me such wonderful advice. Oh, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, same, same thing, Victoria, I'm sure, right? Uh, of course, and then as far as contact goes, Anyone can feel free to email me at Victoria, V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-L, as in Lisa, Kozar, K-O-Z-A-R, at gmail.com. And I, too, I want to thank you guys so much for this opportunity. It's been absolutely incredible speaking with you. And we couldn't do this without Masonicare, Quinnipiac, and, again, all of the adults uh, in the Pond Ridge community and outside of that for just inspiring us every day. And I, I well, want to thank Victoria. I want to also just thank Victoria, too, because she's such a, she, I I wish we could clone her. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Victoria. And please do share this podcast with Ashler and Masonic if you can. I'd appreciate it. So, uh, and and everybody else. So, Delilah, I guess we have to close out the show, no? Well, we are out of time, and I personally would like to thank you all for being here today. And what a, a great program, and uh, I'm I'm happy to share it with anyone I can. I'm, I'm looking for thank big and bigger and better too. things, considering I'm on that end of that elderly spectrum. I'm getting there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so we are. We're getting there. Making plans for the future. <laughs> Looks good. Yes. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you both. It was a pleasure. So with that, we're going to close out this edition of Shattered Lives Radio. Please stay tuned for the next edition soon. And everyone have a safe and enriching weekend. Thank you, Erica, Victoria. Appreciate it.